2: It's the Wonky Show. Universities UK is proposing some sort of alternative. Uh, There's new analysis on teaching and learning and mental health. Universities are being accused of using NDAs to gag student complainants. OFS is out engaging with students and we're chatting open access with UKRI. It's all coming
3: up. And one of the things that emerged out of that uh, investigation was this kind of habitual use of NDAs across all kinds of industries, particularly in the case of of sexual assault and harassment. And You know, these are used, and I think this sort of speaks to a common practice that having been uncovered, people sort of realize. (laughs)
2: Welcome to The Wonky Show, your direct way into this week's higher education news, policy and analysis. I'm Jim Dickinson and I'm here to uh, avoid talking about the reshuffle, because we're recording too early in the week to notice, we have three excellent guests. In Spitalfields, Vanessa Wilson is the Chief exec of the University Alliance. Vanessa, your highlight of the week? Oh,
4: well, it has to be yesterday. Was up in uh, Birmingham City University with our Research and Innovation Network.
2: Fantastic. And in Cheltenham, we have writer, speaker and strategic data advisor Andy Ewell. Andy, your highlight of the week, please?
1: My highlight of the week is the thing I found in the bathroom of a recording stream. Studio on Tuesday. I won't try and describe it. If you follow me on Twitter, you'll have seen it. And if you don't follow me on Twitter, I'll just leave it to your imagination.
2: And in Upton, Snodsbury, in Worcestershire this week, it's Wonky's editor, Debbie McVitty. Debbie, your highlight of the week, please.
3: Good morning. My highlight is coming up this evening as I attend the Labour leadership hustings held by the Jewish Labour movement. So it's all going to be quite lively, I imagine.
2: Excellent stuff. Right. So, yes, we start this week with the news that measures used to assess the value of a degree course could be completely overhauled under proposals to government put forward this week by Universities UK. In a major speech on the topic of value in HE, UK President Julia Buckingham called on government to broaden its definition of value beyond a student's expected future salary. Debbie, what's going on?
3: Uh, Yep. Julia Buckingham, the president of Universities UK, has got into the papers this week. With, uh, was basically saying that the value of a degree and our understanding of, of, of what a degree is worth needs to be, uh, larger than what's captured in the longitudinal educational outcomes, which is basically graduate salary and, and graduate employment outcomes. And the basis for this claim is, is that students value more things about their degree than their, their salary outcome. Um, the, the public at large, you know, it gets value from, from degrees beyond student, student salaries. Um, and so universities UK is planning to produce a new framework in the summer that captures some of these maybe lesser sort of tangible or, or less frequently measured uh, ways of, of, of thinking about value. So things like uh, the proportion of graduates working in essential public services, the number that are taking positions in, in sectors and regions with skill shortages, or uh, whether graduates that are starting their own businesses and being entrepreneurial and sort of contributing in that way. Um, so that's the, that's, the, that's the concept. And I had the pleasure of being at the Advanced HE Let's Talk Value conference where, where Julia gave her speech and, and it was well received.
2: And, and And it's the idea that we will get like a kind of a new a new basket of metrics to put into a into a mixer and, and create medals
3: well, this is where it gets a bit murky because I think the challenge there's there's, there's a number of things going on here one is you know u k is saying we we will provide the data and the evidence to help universities make this case. what i don 't think is going to happen is, is that this becomes policy. So this is really about what universities do with that data and the quality of the communications that they use and, and, and how they engage with students and their various stakeholders in their regions and, uh, and beyond on understanding this, this sort of wider, wider ideas about value. Um, and I think there's a real question here about you know, how, how that can be done and, and whether it will have an impact.
2: Vanessa, you've written on uh, value for money in HE.
4: I have for one key's wicked problem series yeah. Uh, I mean I think um it's got to be welcomed I think the UK's work on this it's great that you know they're looking to develop a broader framework. Um I think to a certain degree we are winning the argument around public sector skills um and to a certain degree the cultural element. um, um My issue is, though, you know, ultimately, is this framework going to answer the Treasury's killer question as to whether or not they're going to get a return for their investment, particularly when we've got a population demographic boom on the horizon?
2: Yeah, and Andy, I think, I mean, it's an interesting move, isn't it? Given that, you know, Universities UK have spent the best part of 20 years talking about the graduate premium in order to justify fees and now desperately wants us all to talk about something else.
1: It, it, it is a very interesting move, I, and I think it is a very clearly a reaction to the extent to which Leo uh, has dominated much of the policy thinking in this space since the data set was, was first created a couple of years ago. I think this is an enormously important move uh, on on the part of UK, and, and I, I fully support it. I'm, I, I'm incredibly concerned with the extent to which Leo... Dominates the policy discussion and it's kind of understandable because the treasury are so interested in how much of the loan is going to get repaid. Uh, and Leo gives some really powerful data, uh, to support that debate and that argument and, and. It is it it is time that, that we need to broaden uh, broaden the argument. So yes, I I I think you know yes, twenty years of talking about the graduate premium uh, is entirely right. But I think it's it is about time that the sector pushed back a little bit in terms of this relentless focus on uh, on on that one measure of of, of graduate salary. Uh, so this really has to be welcomed and supported.
3: But I think there's there's a few different things going on here, isn't there, Andy? Because th- th- there are a number of. There's a sort of small minority of students that, that Leo suggests, and I, you know, I realise the data is not perfect, who are studying in courses where they would, li- you know, the, 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 the indications are they would literally have been financially better off if they hadn't gone to HE, and that's the kind of that's one thing. And then there's this wider conversation about um you know about about how we assess the value of a degree and how we kind of make meaning about the, about what it means to go to university and, and the kind of the the intellectual skills and the kind of development and the impact that you have as as a graduate in society and you know i i don't i, I appreciate that the treasury is questioning you know is asking questions about for example the return on creative arts qualifications because that's one space in which for example you know the, the, the salaries maybe aren't what you might expect them to be or things like you know youth and community studies or even nursing um you know you're not you're not getting an enormous graduate premium from that but I, I do wonder to what extent in policy terms those things are priced in you know we know we have a very flourishing creative arts sector we know that salaries aren't great in it we know that our public sector you know the salaries are what they are so I, I, there's there's an extent to which talking about this kind of uh, sort of ineffable ideas about value and social impact, I think it's really welcome in the sense of, um, you know, these are important dimensions of HE that have perhaps been neglected and people haven't really bothered to measure until they had to. But it does also distract from that quite specific question about these specific courses where the graduates really aren't getting the returns and and really what should be done about that.
1: But but that, I guess, depends when when you say the graduates aren't getting the return. It depends a lot on what return the graduate wants to see um i mean i i spend a lot of my time hanging around with with musicians um none of them <laughs> none of them go go into music to be rich you know i mean there, there there are other motivations there 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 are other other drivers to this and so so there is something about the aspiration about about why people go go into higher education and and do a degree uh, and it, i i think we have to try and broaden the, the debate simply from one about, you know, what's what's on your P60? Uh,
4: if I could come in here, um, I, 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 I think ultimately, uh, unless we can powerfully convince Treasury uh, that underwriting student loans uh, in the future is in their best interest, uh, you know, they're going to get this return, I think we will. We'll lose the argument, and and we will see the return of uh, student number caps, or, or at worst, student choice compromised, or or the autonomy of our universities compromised or challenged. So I think we might, as a sector, be facing some some very very difficult decisions here in order to protect student choice uh, and the autonomy of our on our universities. Um, and I think. Um, you know, uh, we may have to look at things like where where Orga recommended lowering salary thresholds. And that might need to be a space that we we go back to, um, so that ultimately students, as they're deciding their courses, really have to make you know have to look into the future, thinking I have to repay this student loan, therefore I need to think about um, the choices I'm making. I also think government has a, has also a key role to play in you know they've they've effectively used nudge theory a lot in their policies, and they should be. You know, looking to incentivise or nudge the student into the into the subjects that they particularly want them to study, and using you know incentives to to, to achieve that. Uh, what we don't want to see are courses. You know, universities told which courses they can or cannot teach, uh, or students told which which courses they can or cannot do.
2: But so, I mean, that I mean, you raise an interesting question, Vanessa. I think so. If I think about this from the point of view of me being a taxpayer. Is is it okay that as long as there's a student that wants to do a course and a university that wants to put it on, and they you know scrape and that provider scrapes onto the OFS register, that my taxpayers' funding is automatically underwriting that course, regardless of whether it will. You know, do well economically or whether it's good socially. Is it, it, it should, shouldn't there be some restrictions? Because, because there isn't an endless pot of taxpayers' money.
4: Well, that's the point I, I'm, I'm making with whether or not, you know, ultimately we need to go back to, the, you know, does every student need to, you know, enter into that decision? knowing they're going to have to repay that, that loan at some, at some point. Um, so if, it, so from a taxpayer's point of view, you know that they, the student is taking that responsibility. I think that, that will change the dynamic in terms of the kind of information and advice that the student Looks into uh, to make that informed decision, knowing that ultimately going to have to pay this 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 loan back. So, you know, the, the taxpayer then should be relieved at the fact that it is, is going to be paid back.
3: I think Julia made quite a useful point at the start of her speech on Tuesday, which she said, you know, the question students are asking at the minute is less about what salary will I get, um, I and mean, you know, arguably maybe they should be asking that more. But but it's the, the question they're asking is how will I be supported in my learning, um, and I think all. You know the extent to which broadening the debate about value has got to incorporate both that social impact side, but also that you know, higher students being supported, higher they being um, engaged to achieve their aspirations, because ultimately preparing them for you know life and, and will, will, will impact on their on their salary outcomes as well, and and, and also their overall well being and health in the future. But
2: but but that's a good question, Debbie, isn't it? So if there were, I mean, arguably there are, but if there were metrics that told us whether students were being supported in their learning, is, is the way to make all of this fair and okay just to tell students which courses offer that kind of support and then let them choose? Or should there be a kind of baseline of standard of support for students in their learning, um, below which someone can't pull down the subsidy? Well,
3: this is where this whole value question gets really gnarly because you've got NSS results that, by and large, at the aggregate level, say students are pretty happy, they're satisfied, they're getting, they're getting what they need in terms of their learning... And at, one, at the same time, you've got you know sixty percent of students consistently saying in the Happy Advanced HE survey that they don't feel like they're getting value for money. You've got kind of rising concerns about student mental health. You've got you know news stories about um, you know students with a wheelchair sitting in the back of lecture theatres, and it's really hard to know what's actually going on. And, and you know, and I, and and I think it's kind of exploring that that value gap um and, and really getting into it with students i mean we'll probably talk about this later a bit with student engagement is is where it's it, it, if if the question is you know how do students feel that they get, they're getting value for money then it's it's exploring that gap that is going to answer that question should you know should, should should OFS be weighing in and regulating on it probably not yet because i think this idea of value for money still needs an awful lot of unpacking um but I, yeah if there's a there's a there's, there's a sense in which if if the um you know, if, if the NSS data and, and the, the perception of value is is is, is mismatch, we
0: need to understand what that
3: what that's about.
2: Great, yes. Yeah, so let's see who's been blogging for us this week.
0: Hello, uh, my name's Claudia Aswar, and I'm a senior consultant at Nows Group, which is a public sector consulting firm specialising in higher education. My, my colleague Simon Lancaster's article in Wonky this week is about how universities can respond strategically to the climate emergency. The context for this is the growing body of universities declaring climate emergencies and writing climate change action plans and strategies, which is really important work, but it risks falling apart in a policy environment that incentivizes growth, growth that tends to be carbon intensive. And it throws up challenges for universities, like how can they reconcile their internationalization strategies with the need to fly people all around the world Or how do they approach the issue of of the carbon cost of lots of international students? We think the answer is to incorporate environmental objectives into institutional strategies to make sure that these objectives are part of high-level strategic decision-making. And that helps universities to make the trade-off between all the great things they deliver with the carbon cost and their environmental agenda.
2: Now, next up, students with few or no helpful teachers are 146% more likely to report a high level of dissatisfaction with life. Uh, That's one of the findings in a new policy note from HEPI, authored by Tim Blackman, VC at the OU and formerly from Middlesex, who's applied sophisticated statistical techniques to a recent survey. Vanessa, fill us in.
4: Yeah, so this item relates to uh, student mental well-being and mental health and the contributing or underlying factors to a student's assessment of their mental health and well-being. Yeah, HEPI, Advance HE and OPENS VC Professor Tim Blackman have all contributed research and thinking in this space. In terms of the key contributing underlying factors identified, teaching quality is a key contributing factor to a student's well-being uh, uh, to also, there's ethnic identity and socio-demographic backgrounds. So, for example, students from the lowest participa- participation quintile experience higher dissatisfaction with life compared with those students from the highest participation quintile. Uh, also, other factors include whether a student is residential or commuter. So, we, uh, in summary, the study shines a, a light on the true drivers around student wellbeing and mental health and the importance of investing in high quality teaching.
2: Uh, Andy, it's interesting, this isn't it because it's uh, it's very tempting to read a causation, but it
1: might just be a correlation. Oh yes, and and uh, you know I I think this work has a long way to go yet. I think this is a very significant step uh, in in helping us understand some of these issues. Uh, I I think it's a remarkably good piece of uh, analysis, and I I I applaud Professor Blackman for it. Um, but like any any good analysis, what it does is it doesn't initially provide you with uh, shiny, well-formed answers. What it does do is is, is is it focuses your attention on the areas where we should be digging deeper and asking more questions. Um, so I I, I think it is, it is a really good step. But you're absolutely right. You know, there's there's a lot more to understand uh, in this space.
2: Debbie, uh, is, uh, I mean, I say that, and, and Andy's right, of course, but, I mean, it's, it's presumably not as if poor mental health could be causing poor support for students. So it's a reasonable guess that there's a causational link, isn't there?
3: oof i uh, not going to speak to data <laughs> but, <laughs> oh, damn no, you. but uh i mean I th- it, it's one of those it's one of those moments isn't it where you, it sort of rings true and you sort of think, okay well, this is absolutely worth asking more questions about so i think I think what's interesting about this is is this isn't this isn't really about teaching quality in a, in the kind of way that it's typically conceived in that this is about teachers' attitudes and behaviours. Um, so the kind of idea of being helpful and supportive. And it is, you know, it, it is so interesting to think about the, you know, the, the way that um, teaching staff uh, build the relationships with students, because inevitably, um, certain sorts of students, certain certain kind of sh- you know things like shared cultural background, shared kind of you know behaviors and, and and habits and expectations are going to foster a kind of deeper relationship, and of course, and as a consequence, those students are more likely to experience those teaching staff as being helpful. Um, so I think that there's a really interesting thing about about cultures um, and about in- you know in- intercultural competency um, and. And I think it, you know, and it, and it makes absolute sense. I also think that it it could actually be true that if students are experiencing stress and anxiety, their behaviours are going to present in such a way as as, as, it's, as it's, it's it's it might present to teachers in such a way as they they might be seen as being withdrawn, as being um you know, uh you know disengaged, and 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 that would 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 lead that teacher to kind of respond to them in a certain way. So. This this speaks very much to the the kind of quality of the relationships between teaching staff and students. Um, but then, kind of underpinning that, I think it's not fair to say, oh well, if teachers are being unhelpful, then that's a problem with the teachers. I think there's probably also a resourcing issue here um, about the numbers of students that teachers are expected to have a relationship with, um, and the you know the kind of the, the scale of the workload. Because I think you know this this is an emotional burden, and there's probably gender issues going on here as well, which would be really interesting to unpack. Um, and, and, of course, that should be recognised in, and, 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 and as part of a, of a teacher's workload.
2: And, and, and that's interesting, isn't it, Vanessa? So, I mean, you, 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 you put up the kind of spirited defence of, you know, not reintroducing number controls, which lots of people do. But arguably, one of the things that's happened since we've taken number controls off is there's been much more, much choppier kind of ups and downs in student recruitment within departments and subjects in universities. And I can think of plenty where, you know, there's arguably been over-recruitment and then a shortage of people to do things like marking and... Support students directly.
4: I, I mean, for me, it's more about um, embracing that kind of more diverse community, actually. Uh, and I think uh, it, it's it's how you make that whole student community feel welcome, and you're you're kind of positively embracing that the diversity of it. Um, uh, I, you know, and I can only really speak about my members who you know traditionally. You know, the 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 community, the student com- community, is extremely diverse, and uh, and the the, the the things that they do to to make sure that those students are as welcomed as possible, you know, uh, high proportion from state school and disadvantaged backgrounds, commuter students, part time, etc.
2: And that's, a, that's an interesting question, isn't it, Andy? So, I mean, one of the things that is definitely hap- has definitely happened in January is that lots and lots of universities have recruited a significant number of international students. It looks like their visa changes are having a positive effect. but. Um, I wonder whether universities are fully planned for that kind of diversity and the sort of support they need to put in place to manage it well uh,
1: yeah and and that raises all sorts of issues doesn't it not only in terms of the support that those those students need and the different types of support those students need but also you know the, the impact then on on the student body uh, as a whole and 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 how that feels for for the other students so I think yes there's 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 all sorts of um, uh, all sorts of issues within uh, within that
2: and debbie the other thing i was thinking that is interesting is that uh obviously in theory universities don't have data sets around you know mental health and where they might need to do targeting but if there are relationships between what are in truth some quite specific nss questions and mental well-being that in theory allows universities to kind of interrogate which student characteristics or academic subjects where they need to target mental health support
3: yes but i think and and you know, and I know I know that you're not guilty of this, Jim, but I think the the you know, the the other pla- the place to start is with the student reps and with student societies and with you know unpacking some of that lived experience because um, you know, the data I think gives you a really useful starting point to say, well, here are some questions that we maybe should be asking, and particularly if you've got um you know, if you if, if you've got if you've got statistics on who's visiting counselling services, but also you've got um that sort of anecdotal conversational uh, insight coming from coming from student reps about where the issues are and, and 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 you know and who you know who's kind of who's who's coming to the SU with problems then you can begin to kind of stitch together a picture and that's where I think the magic happens when you're kind of working alongside with students to really get a grip of how how and, and it's not about saying you know teachers are behaving like this and this is wrong and this is bad customer service this is about saying the, re- the relationship is not strong enough here to make to help the student feel supported and there, there might be legitimate reasons for that, but they need to be addressed and, and, and you know, engaged with in a way that has, you know, respect for this, that, that student's lived experience.
1: There is, um, there is a question I, I would love to see answered in, in this whole area. I, I, I fear the data uh, probably doesn't exist to To address it but you know over the last couple of decades we have seen a huge change in the way higher education is funded and and you know the emergence of uh you know the 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 tuition fee and the idea that, that young people will graduate with a colossal debt uh around their neck and and you know i would love to see some some Good long time series data uh, to see, you know, the, the the kind of effect that that has, that pressure has, uh, that perception of pressure has on 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 students going through the system, knowing that they're going to come out with 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 this huge debt, and what that is. Doing uh, in terms of their anxiety, in 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 terms of their mental health, Um, I I I fear the data uh, probably doesn't exist to do that, but you know it it would be a data set I would love to have a play with.
3: It's one of those things, though, isn't it? It's you know if if you asked a graduate and said you you, you'd really have to think about the question because I'm sure lots of people will or have asked graduates, do you feel that the burden of debt is contributing to your overall anxiety? And of course, the answer to that question is yes, yes, I do. You know, it's it's hard to it's hard to know how you would. Ask that question in a way that would give you that, that wouldn't you know you of, the cre- cre- create thoughts, the problem yeah. you're trying yeah. to address.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Are, you, are are you strapped for cash <laughs> in your twenties? <20s? laughs> <laughs> uh...
3: Uh, <laughs> Do you feel burdened by uh, debt? Yes, actually, no, that you mention it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: Now, one of the real benefits of bringing disparate research funders together under the auspices of UKRI is the idea of harmonised policies. Uh, right now, institutions have to comply with different requirements from different funding councils, and the consensus is turning to the idea that this is needless complexity. Uh, there have been efforts to bring policy on open access together before the RCUK open access policy was a 2013 attempt, and it was revised as recently as 2018. So does the new uh, UKRI consultation? point to a continuation or a sea change? Uh, DK add a chat to Sir Duncan Wingham at UKRI to find out more.
5: The new policy applies to all articles accepted for publication by the 1st of January 2021 that acknowledge funding from UKRI and its constituent councils. There's no embargo period permitted. If you've been following the debates around European Plan S initiatives, you'll recognise many of the suggestions, though so this is a proper consultative exercise that includes the possibility to advocate for some ideas that are not compliant. Duncan Wigham told me that these draw an extensive pre-consultation. For example, the possibility of more restrictive licensing than the standard Creative Commons attribution option for certain publication is well outside of both the letter and spirit of Plan S, but as a response to pre-consultation issues. I was surprised to see no coverage of supporting materials. Research data, which does feature in the 2013 policy, is another area where differing funder policies cause complex and expensive problems. Wingham suggested that the side of the open science debate would most likely feature in a separate policy. The big change is the inclusion of open access requirements for monographs and book chapters, a huge difference for the humanities and social sciences, which is slated to come into force by the 1st of January 2024. Though the publishing world is beginning to offer this kind of publication option, it's not yet quite mainstream. Perhaps for this reason, we see a 12-months embargo period permitted, a later starting date, and more flexibility around no-derivatives licensing. UKRI, of course, includes Research England, and there's a clear read-across from some of these ideas in the consultation to what we might expect to see in the rules for the next REF but one. Duncan Wingham suggested that the rules should be compatible, but that it was possible that REF could have more permissive policies than those for directly UCRE funded projects. This kind of makes sense. There are a lot of other research funders, and although major ones like Wellcome are either on a par with or slightly ahead of EUCRE policy on open access other funders may have requirements that are incompatible. One of the eye-catching ideas suggested in the consultation is a national research repository. Other funders, and indeed UK Constituent Councils, already run open access repositories, as do universities themselves. A national repository would be a serious infrastructure project and would need serious long-term investment.
2: Hello, it's Jim from the team. Uh, the Secret Life of Students 2020. It's our student experience conference where we'll be doing student experience differently. 19th of March, London Mermaid Centre. Uh, you've got to be there. Um, it's all about doing the student experience differently. We're going to bring together research and intel and review everything we learned about students in 2019 and ask what that means for government and regulators and universities and their students' unions. It's about getting beyond the stale debates and case studies and rethinking the student experience, uh, bringing together excellent. Experts and sector leaders and managers, as well as student leaders and student union managers, to forge a new agenda for students. What does that mean? Well, uh, we'll look at what the new government and the associated regulatory agenda mean for students. We'll take a look at what major changes to funding, the TEF, and the National Student Survey could mean for universities and their student unions. Uh, if Generation Z is a generation that treasures fairness. We'll think about how we can respond to strengthen students' rights, how teaching and learning could be changing to adapt to 2020's busy students, and we'll have a think about what student influence and partnership mean in a world of big data. Uh, we'll also ask how we might get beyond the reductive, endless circular debates on free speech and build a culture of democratic engagement on campus. We'll find out what happens when you listen to students on their own terms, and we'll explore what safety means to students and what safeguarding really means. Uh, It's going to be great. An essential event for anyone working on policy and delivery for students. To find out more, you want wonky.com forward slash events where you'll find details of speakers and details of how to get your ticket. Now, next up then, UK universities are using gagging clauses to stop students from going public with complaints of sexual assault, bullying and poor teaching. Nearly a third of universities have used NDAs for student grievances, uh, and Chris Skidmore tweeted
1: to say that this is nothing short of an abuse of power. Andy, tell us more. So this is a piece of research that the BBC uh, news team has undertaken. They've used FOI requests. Um, They have got responses from 136 uh, universities uh, and... uh, they have established that uh, around 300 students uh, have signed NDAs over the past three years. They have got some numbers uh, around uh, payouts, uh, and, and the payouts associated with this are in the region uh, of 250 pounds to up to 40,000 pounds. The average figure is is around four and a half thousand pounds. Yes, Jim, as, as as you say, there has been some virtual table thumping uh, on Twitter from the. Uh, uh, Possibly former uh, higher education minister Chris Chris Skidmore, saying this is uh, this is not good enough, uh, and and this story is is causing a bit of a stir. There is um, the headlines are kind of focusing on uh, issues around sexual assault, although as as you rightly say in the in the introduction, uh, it is around sexual assault, bullying, poor teaching, any kind of uh, student complaint uh, in in that space. Um, there is. Uh, there, there are a number of very, very juicy headlines in this. Um, and I, I, I think, you know, we need to do a lot more uh, digging beneath the surface to understand what the issues are here. Uh, but on the face of it, it does look to be a, a potentially very worrying picture.
4: Well, yeah, I was going to uh, take quite a reflective um, position uh, on this uh, and to not to jump to the knee-jerk reactionary position that governments and regulators tend to do when they're faced with what ultimately is a media story uh, fueled by FOI and, uh, and, a, and a classic tactic at that so I do think there needs to be more research and understanding uh conducted to really understand what sits behind these stories uh and figures uh I'm no expert I'm no legal expert it's obviously NDAs are a legal contract uh that they're used in a number of sectors uh Probably justifiably in some cases. Um, so I'd like—I really want to understand uh, whether there has been genuine misuse and abuse of them, um, because I think um, to jump to the sort of knee-jerk position to ban them and and, and condemn them, uh, I think there could be some unintended consequences long-term if if that was taken. I think there does need to be a proper uh, investigation here uh, to understand what's what really sits behind it. Um, I think having experience in other and other lives where similar issues have have come about when you are faced with the you know, the reality of what's actually happened, it gives you quite a different picture.
2: Debbie, obviously we heard a couple of weeks ago that the government was considering banning NDAs in an employment context, but DFE's quote seemed to suggest the other day that that might be extended into this kind of student complaint space.
3: Well, there's, I mean, there's a much larger social context here, and it's actually, it's all really traceable back to Harvey Weinstein. Um, uh, a, a, it's a brilliant book um, out at the minute, which is the the, the journalist who um, uncovered uh, the, from the New York Times who uncovered the Harvey Weinstein kind of long 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 tale of of, of sexual abuse and bullying and, and harassment kind of th- throughout a whole career. And, and one of the things that emerged out of that uh, investigation was this kind of habitual use of NDAs across all kinds of industries, particularly in the case of of sexual assault and harassment. And uh, you know the, the, these are used. And I think this this sort of speaks to a common practice that, having been uncovered, people sort of realise is 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 incredibly problematic because, of course, the thing about sexual harassment and assault is is that the people who do it tend to do it lots, and tend to do it systematically. And and by by gagging um, the people who have suffered the abuse, you uh, you prevent that kind of that that sort of systemic issues from coming to light. That said. You know, one of the kind of things that people say about use of NDAs, especially in the case of sexual harassment and assault, is is that you know one of the thing, the often the kind of complexities of the case are such that the victims really just want to move on, um, and you know so, so and it, it is claimed, I don't know with what justification that you know it, it is rather than kind of having this kind of public difficult thing dogging you as as a, a victim of assault or harassment, that you're able to just move on. You've got some money to kind of get you started in, in, in the next thing, and that you can kind of you can put you can put it behind you, and, and that that's a kind of good outcome. For everyone, I, you know, obviously can't speak to the specifics of the cases in these universities, um, but I think this this speaks to a kind of a, a kind of collective social realization that NDAs are just not appropriate, um, and they may be kind of legally watertight and they may be kind of legal, um, but they are one hundred percent not uh, a good way to uh, root out cultural issues. Um, and, and therefore, you know, the, the, world, the world is moving on, and universities will too.
2: Now it's time for Yes, But Does It Correlate? Here to set this week's correlation question is Wonky's Associate Editor, David Kernahan.
5: Welcome to Yes, But Does It Correlate? The podcast segment recently appointed as Minister for Higher Education Data. This time it's a question of area. Do providers with more students, as FTEs, have more internal space to teach them all? We're looking at all levels and mode of delivery and the measurements of internal space come from the HESA estates data set. FTE and floor space, yes, but does it correlate? And a bonus question, which is the only UK HEI that returns HESA data that has only one building?
3: I just I'm liking the picture of, of all the students at a university sort of cl- standing on the university, all kind of <laughs> squeezed in and, and yeah also all sort of standing there going, Oh it's a bit it's a bit Tight, tight, breathing. I'm going to go with no. It doesn't correlate, and I think that particularly in, this, in the case of the Open University, it correlates not not even slightly, but also for most universities.
4: Yeah, I'd say the same. I don't think
1: it, I don't think it would correlate. I I I think there must be a correlation. A university with a thousand students is almost certainly going to be a lot smaller than a university with twenty thousand students, but I suspect it is quite a weak correlation.
5: And the answer is yes, R-squared is 0.68, suggesting a clear relationship between floor space and student numbers. The University of Manchester has the most buildings, that's 219 across seven sites, but the only single building he's a returning HEI is the Royal Northern College of Music. As usual, where the data doesn't exist, I've not plotted it.
2: And finally, the Office for Students has set out a new approach to ensuring that students help shape the regulation of HE in England. The student engagement strategy has been developed in partnership with students from a variety of different backgrounds, uh, and with the support of OFS's student panel. Debbie, is this a thing?
3: Well, yeah. So this is the long-awaited OFS student engagement strategy, and there's some uh, good debate on the site about this this morning, where you can kind of go and, and see see what what people think. Um, Things to say about it. This is about engagement with the Office for Students. So this is not about setting expectations of student engagement with providers, which some might say is perhaps more important, but this is, you know, this is the, the, the parameters that OFS have chosen to set. Um, I think although although there are things to criticise about the strategy... There, there is also progress to be acknowledged here. So it is it is good to see that some acknowledgement of formal student representation systems and student unions and NUS in the strategy, because I don't think two years ago OFS would have done that. They were pretty suspicious of student unions, of memory serves. Um, so I think that that does mark a shift. I also think this marks a real shift from the days of Hefke and. Um, you know, when Hefke was appointed stu- student champion, um, it sort of led to 18 months of, of kind of complete panic as they kind of try and figure out what on earth that meant and how they were going to actually listen to student voices. So, so you know, th- this is a step forward. Um, that said, um, yeah there's a sort of there's a sort of shallowness I think at the heart of this strategy and and it's um and it's a bit sort of troubling for I guess anyone who's kind of pro- been professionally engaged in in thinking about researching or practicing student engagement and I think what what captures it for me is this is this sort of old chestnut that students are expert in their own experience on which this whole strategy hangs the concept that the strategy hangs on and I think if you unpack that it doesn't really mean very much because I think the thing about student engagement and if students are going to be able to um understand the constituent parts of uh, the systems and the cultures and policies that produce their experience in a university. Um, They actually need an awful lot of education and support to do that. because And and if they're going to be really meaningfully critical about those systems and processes and cultures, then they, they, they need support and engagement and, and kind of meaningful dialogue and people who work in student engagement understand that and that's why student unions invest so much um effort and time and thinking in in these in these practices and, and universities too um and, and so simply kind of simply doing a survey and kind of getting students in as interns and um you know making sure that you you know you've you're, you're, you're you're doing student workshops to ask students about what they think um all of these things are not these are not bad things to do but they don't really answer the question about how students are going to impactfully and meaningfully shape the regulatory system and so i think there's more work to do here
2: and and Andy, it's a bit late to be shaping the regulatory system
1: isn't it because we, it's kind of already there well it's it's already there in in terms of you know the basic elements the scaffolding of of it but there is something about how uh, it is used and how how it is steered over over the years ahead and so i i i'm, I'm quite comfortable with the idea that actually, you know, these, this, these are still very early days for the OFS. Uh, it is it is still the start of their journey. Um, and so I, I, I don't think it is a, a bit late for that. Vanessa, one of the
2: things that the strategy says they're going to pilot in the next year is encouraging students and students unions to use the notifications process to OFS, the kind of the, the, the snitching hotline. How will providers respond to that? <laughs>
4: Well and before I answer that perhaps can I just say that um uh, uh my response to this is um what, why why only now um and why wasn't this really the first thing that the OFS uh, did uh, given the clue is in is in the name um uh, and I think actually had they started off uh by really engaging students as part of their regulatory role um then they would be in a far more sort of genuinely more powerful position in the sector uh, as as a result um uh, to answer your question, uh, I think that's, uh, I think, is, is that the right, the right way to, to go about things? I think if you're really properly engaging the student voice in, in how you operate and, and, and where you focus your priorities, is this, is this what you're really wanting people to do is to snitch on, on their providers? I think if you genuinely get the channel's uh, engagement right, I don't actually think you need to, to, to sort of activate that, that way of doing things.
2: And, and, and that, that is one of the uh, kind of interesting aspects, isn't it, Debbie, that obviously that the, the strategy talks a lot about involving students in kind of policy and project development but that thing about involving students in regulation is is actually a lot harder
3: yes um, well i think i mean i think it's actually pretty hard to engage students in policy and project development as well <laughs> <laughs> i mean and and uh, yeah and, and there, there is this sort of sense that that, that, you know it'll be it'll well i mean the, the bit where um, ofs says oh well we're going to have student facing communications and you know the heart just sort of sinks because you just think oh goodness this is going to be cheesy at best you know but uh, yes engage yes it could be yes because one if you turn students into into kind of a, a policing um function um in universities you, you you do some sort of quite difficult things i think to the to the relationship, and I think student unions have to really think about their because the, the demands on student unions because it's going to be the student union, isn't it? It's not, you know, it might it might be some random, particularly engaged student, probably a PhD student who's actually read the regulatory framework and has thoughts, you know, in a few cases, but it's mostly going to be student unions. And student unions are going to have to think really carefully about where they position themselves because they they want to be they want to work in partnership with their institutions, they want to maintain those relationships, you know, that's the right thing to do. They also need to be critical and they need to be independent. Um, and, and And they need to have their own voice and their own kind of authentic, you know authentic voice of students uh, you know as representative as they possibly can be and um, you know that 's a line that student unions always have, sort of struggle to walk and have to think quite carefully about The other thing of course is they get their, uh, part of the thing that they get also get pulled into sort of operational stuff, so not only are they kind of you know, saying to institutions, you need to tighten up on your feedback and assessment, that they're being kind of told, well, how should we do that? You must bring us solutions and you must bring us ideas, you know. So, so there's, an awful, there's, quite, there's quite a burden on them. It, I, I can see the value of a regulator that is open to listening to the voices of students where there is a significant issue, where there is, you know, all kind of internal avenues have been exhausted. Um, and they're kind of bringing that sort of collective voice of this is a real problem here and it needs addressing and there's, we've got no one else to talk to about this. But you know, yes, the idea that students should be kind of running off to the regulator at the kind of first sign of trouble I think is 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 it's just not going to happen <laughs> it's you know it's super problematic and even if even if it were the right thing to do I, I don't see student unions um kind of you know just losing that relationship that they built up with their universities that they have to work really hard on in order to you know score a point I just don't see it happening
2: good so that's about it for this week remember to delve deeper into anything we've discussed today you'll find links in the show notes don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast automatically search for the wonky show via itunes or your favorite android podcast directory or you'll find the feed you need on wonky.com forward slash podcast and if you fancy appearing as a guest on the wonky show drop us an email on team at wonky.com and we'll be in touch so thanks to vanessa andy debbie everyone at team wonky for making it all happen behind the scenes and until next week stay wonky